Hey everyone, Paul here. Quick word before we get into today's fantastic conversation with Drew Johnson. It's the end of 2023, or we're approaching the end of 2023, and this podcast has been going for about six years now. And aside from like maybe a couple of episodes a few years ago where I had a really good cause that we did advertisements for, this has been an ad-free podcast. My goal has been to essentially take what I would have done and did for years in the classroom and to try to give it a, an educational experience in theology, religion, philosophy, some of these unique things that, you know, you might not find a lot of podcasts about out there. Things like cultural theology, theology of culture, or theology and science, the way that theology and science interact. I know there are classes out there, fantastic classes happening at seminaries, in universities all over the country. But my goal has been, I'd love to do the kinds of things that I know people are learning about in those seminaries, in those grad schools and classrooms, and to be able to just give it away for free through this podcast. And that has been my goal. And that's what we've been doing for the past six years. But in order to keep that going, we really need help. And we need to hit 200 patrons. We're shy of that goal, and so I encourage you, if this is something that you're finding helpful, in order for me to be able to keep giving it away, I'm not going to do advertisements, and my goal has been, I just want to freely give this away, and I hope that enough people would see the value in it to say, hey, I want to support it, so that maybe other people who can't actually financially support the podcast can still get something out of it. So if you have the means to be able to support the podcast on Patreon for two bucks, seven bucks, 15 bucks a month, or higher levels of support, I would invite you to do that. Again, you'll find a link in the description below. And for doing that, there's a bunch of perks, things that I think are helpful to those who want to go deeper. We do bonus Q&A episodes. We do live Zoom chats, group discussions, where people from all over the US, all over North America will hop on with me for chats about stuff we've been talking about in these podcasts. So all that stuff is a bonus benefit to those of you who are supporting this and making sure that I can keep doing this. I can keep doing videos over on my YouTube channel, writing on my Substack, et cetera, et cetera. Speaking of YouTube, this episode is available as a full length video. So if you like watching uh, and you want to see, you know, the interactions when, when conversation partners are dialoguing to see facial expressions, all that sort of other, other stuff, or maybe you like just putting it up and casting it to your TV or whatever, this is available on YouTube. And so you can go subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can just search for Paul and Leitner on YouTube and you can find my channel there. Well, I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Stay tuned to the very end to find out more about the ways you can connect with me, ask questions, all of that fun stuff. It was a little shocking to me that only the Hebrews are talking about the exact same things that that uh, Darwin is identifying as his elements of uh, you know, the, the, the pressures of natural selection, um, and they're and they're putting them in direct conversation with each other, so that like they're they're intertwined and interdependent upon each other in the way that Darwin does, and so that's just interesting. I don't like I don't even know what to make of that fact. Like to me, that's just like a historical fact. If you want, if you go back in history and say who is talking like Darwin about natural selection, uh, the Hebrew account, and not just Genesis, but th this this discussion carries on beyond Genesis. Like they're the only ones that are doing anything uh, that even approaches something similar to what Darwin is doing. 
Welcome everyone to another episode of Deep Talks. I'm really excited to have a new guest on the program. Um, maybe some of you listen to the OnScript podcast. I think it's something I've referenced before. It's one of my favorite podcasts. Drew is a co-host there. But not only that, he is also the visiting associate professor of religion at Hope College in Michigan. Before that, he was associate professor of biblical and theological studies at the King's College in New York City. He's also the uh, director for the Center for, Hu uh, Center for Hebraic Thought. And uh, again, one of my co-hosts on one of my personal favorite podcasts, the OnScript podcast. It helps. Drew, that, that podcast always helps. I'm, I'm not in academia uh, mm. anymore. And so uh, I always feel like I can tune into that podcast to be uh, keep up to date and afresh yeah. on like what's going on in the world of you know um, biblical studies. You, know, you guys get into some theology, broader theology as well, but it's a great great podcast. But the reason why I invited Drew on today, he's the author of a brand new book. It's coming out this December, and it's called What Hath Darwin to Do with Scripture? Comparing Conceptual Worlds of the Bible and Evolution. Um, IVP and Drew were fortunate enough to let me get a little early look at it, and this is a fantastic book. Those of you who have been following my podcast for years know this is the sort of subject matter that we are wrestling with all the time, and uh, Drew has got a fantastic book. Drew, thanks for your time today. Oh, it's an honor to be on with you. I'm, I'm curious just to begin with, um, you know, this is a subject matter that is uh, sparked my curiosity. I grew up in a very, very dogmatic young earth creationist context. Hmm. I think many of my listeners uh, share that background, you know, coming from some sort of evangelical context. And uh, this isn't uh, hyperbole. It was very much presented to me in my childhood as uh, science, mainstream science, academic science is part of a global conspiracy to kill mm. people's faith in Jesus Christ. Um, thankfully, as I got a little bit older, <laughs> uh, I found out that um, primarily through a better understanding of biblical hermeneutics, that uh, I was I needed a better biblical hermeneutic first and foremost. Mm. And then once that changed and I started to be able to understand the Bible and its context a little better, I started to realize these tensions that were portrayed for me weren't really as big of deal as I had been hearing about mm. for much of my entire life. So what draws you personally to write a book on this subject matter? Um, it's funny you say that because I always forget that kind of upbringing exists uh, because that was not my upbringing at all. Um, uh, it wasn't for most of my childhood was not raised in the church. Um, I became a Christian when I was 20. I was kind of a lazy agnostic before that, just not interested in anything biblical or religious. Um, wasn't even seeking. And um, so I, I forget that, you know, I, I mean, I have students every once in a while, they'll say like, so you're saying the world is not 6,000 years old? And I'm like, oh, oh right. yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, Really what drew me to it is um, I I was interested in science, uh, and I, I think it's actually, this is a little autobiographical, but uh, I came up in a broken home, and I think there was part of my journey to becoming a mature human being was, how do you know anything with confidence? Like, how, like every, nothing seemed firm in my world growing up, and so I think I was always looking for something that had some firmness to it, um, and... I latched on to science and social psychology is where I, where I entered it, which, you know, some people don't even think is a science, but it actually, you know, in some ways they, they think they take meth scientific methodology a little bit more seriously because they know people don't 
revere their methodology as much. So I think they think a lot about methodology uh, sometimes. And uh, when I took statistics and research methods class uh, for research design, I was just like, oh my goodness, this is how you can actually know things in the real world. And like, <laughs> and, and you know, not know them and say it's been proven, but just know them and say like, I'm pretty confident something like this is true. Like this is what will happen. If you, if you do this, this, this will happen. And um, I did though, and I wasn't a Christian uh, at, at the beginning of that journey, but I certainly do remember earth science classes and, biology classes which i loved um in fact i kind of said if if i could do the math i probably would have been a full-on biology uh, biologist that would have would have been what i loved but um i was always a little disturbed even as a non-christian who is again a lazy agnostic about the kind of evolutionary explanations i was getting the dogmatic explanations i was getting in science class mm -hmm. which was essentially this kind of hand-waving mystery mongering appeals to like and some evolutionary process must have developed this, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that was very frustrating. I just smelled BS, you know, like a, as a friend of mine always said, uh, like I have a very acute sense of BS in the air, <laughs> unless it's my own, then I just can ignore it all day and all night. But um, so that disturbed me. I loved scientific inquiry and method because I just felt like it gave me some sense of that I that you could confidently navigate the world. Um, I think a lot of it, I think almost all scientific inquiry is based uniquely in the Hebrew tradition and uh, and not so the Greco-Roman tradition or the Chinese or the other. And I'm, I'm not the only one who thinks that, but that, that kind of came to the fore later. And um, the deeper I went down the scientific path, the more I felt confident. And then God redirected me. I became a Christian. Like I had a day and night radical conversion. Wow. Um, and it stayed in my psychology degree. And then, you know, and then was aware of how much my psychology professors made fun of religious people and kind of looked down upon them uh, as silly. And I just kind of took that and said, this is my private faith and went forward. And then after I went to seminary and uh, elsewhere, I kind of always tucked in the back of my head, like, I got to reconcile the science thing to, to the religion thing. At some point here, I got to figure this out. So that even in seminary, I was reading Michael Polanyi, who was a scientist turned philosopher. Um, and he was opening my eyes. He was not a Christian. He was Jewish, but he was a non-practicing Jew. But he was opening my eyes to um, the science is a mystery religion in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, he, he would never say that, but that's essentially, if you're an anthropologist studying scientific behavior, that's often what they compare it to as mystery religions or even uh, the ancient Hebrew religion. So like there, there's a way that scientific practice apes or mimics um, what's going on uniquely in the Hebrew Bible and the Judeo-Christian tradition. And so that began that itch. And then eventually uh, evolution was the one that always bothered me because I had no way to reconcile it. And the stories I was hearing from the main people who were reconciling it were basically like, you know, either pitch evolution because it's from the devil or uh, pitch Genesis 1 through 11 because it's just ateological, functional or, or mythical or something, you know, it's not meant to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. So pitch it and just uh, supplant it with the evolutionary story and they're done and dusted, good to go. Now you're fine. And uh, the more I worked in biblical scholarship, the less that seemed satisfactory to me. So, uh, so about in 2018, I had this chance to do a sabbatical at, on a project where we were supposed to be working on something creation evolution um, related. And that's when I wrote most of this book, which was my attempt to kind of finally get my head around some of these issues. Um, mm -hmm. And if you read the whole book, you'll realize I don't get my head around. <laughs> 
around all these issues, but I try to get a bite into it that I think everybody is ignoring. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think the amount of time that, um, you know, the church has been wrestling with this comparatively to the other issues the church has been wrestling with is a very, very short time. True. I mean, we've only known about dinosaurs since the 18th century. You know, this is like really, really fresh stuff. And, you know, to our credit in some ways, um, new ideas, uh, take a while to pass the, uh, the process of approval, which I I actually think is, is a degree of health there. Right. Right. You need to have a burden of proof. Right. But that's why I see this is a pretty fascinating frontier, um, where, you know, I think in times past you'd have Catholic theologians, but I'm, I'm really excited about what I'm seeing maybe in broader evangelical contexts where once people have become aware that that particular hermeneutic that was really forcing, you know, I've often framed it as my questions of the text are inspired mm-hmm. instead of the text and the author right. being inspired that I come in and I, I want to force, you know, whether I have questions about quantum mechanics, I'm going to go to Genesis one and force some sort right, of right. interpretation out of there. But I think the thing that seems to be you're, you're exploring in your book here, and it's been part of my interest as well. So once we get to that point where we're like, okay, I, I recognize that my hermeneutic doesn't need to force a particular, um, a, a particular scientific conclusion onto mm-hmm. the world. And now I'm engaging with what is maybe the broader consensus in the scientific community. And I'm starting to realize that there are stories. And I think this is what your book does such a good job of talking mm-hmm. about that there's stories going on here. So it's not purely that we just have data you know, scientific data as if it exists in some neutral vacuum, but that data then gets put into a story. So, you know, famously, right, for for a guy like Darwin, who's in, influenced by Thomas Malthus, right. I think you hint, uh, not hint, but you address this in your book that so much of his worldview is focused on scarcity, mm-hmm. scarcity of resources, the concerns in the cultural moment about overpopulation. And so you can see that sort of language in the way Darwin shapes what he's experienced in his scientific uh, investigation and Mm -hmm. shapes it into a story. And you talk about in your book how, you know, I think we are actually seeing there's been even among those who, whether they have Christian commitments or not, are kind of reassessing some of that narrative. Mm -hmm. I think that's really fascinating. So you talk about in the book, you know, that there I think your your primary concern, and I'm going to take it here directly as a quote from your book, um, and correct me if you would say this isn't your thesis statement. Yeah. But I, th- I haven't I read think- the book in like a year, so <laughs> you could oh, say yeah. anything now, and I believe it was in there. <laughs> so uh, early on, maybe in the first chapter, the Hebrew creation counts, specifically Genesis 1 to 2, among others, sew together the same three concerns that Darwin eventually identified as the central topics of natural selection. Scarcity of resources, fittedness to habitat, and their combined impacts on sexual propagation. Um, So Darwin's work tells a story, and that's not to say it's a singular story, just like, you know, when we talk about a Christian story, there's not like a singular story out there. Uh, Talk a little bit about how you would maybe summarize like that, that Darwinian story, right? And why you would say 
hey, I think there's actually stuff here in the biblical story that speaks to that. Because certainly another approach might be, as I think you've mentioned here already, is that these two stories just don't talk at all, mm-hmm. right? So you've got one story that deals with purely theological truths, religious truths, uh, and then you have another thing that has to deal with material truths, and they don't really need to speak to each other. Sounds like you're suggesting they should, and they do speak to each other. So maybe you could maybe give a kind of a summary and what you see yeah. those stories as saying and why you think the biblical story has something to say about that Darwinian story. Um, the, the, the phrase I've been using is apples to apples approach and that a lot of people basically say these two, these two stories, the, these accounts are doing two different things, apples and oranges, you know, as we put that, that puts some people off that work, that work in the theistic evolution side. So, um, but what I mean by the apples to apples is it was surprising to me. And I don't know, I, I, I gave a paper, a Biologos Colossian form thing a, a long time ago. And as I was preparing that paper, I didn't actually say it in the paper that I presented, but um, it kind of occurred to me like, wait, Darwin is noticing something in the world. Uh, my working title for the book was "Is What Scripture and Darwin Noticed," um, because I think they're both attending to something that's happening in the real world. And so, in some ways, Christians don't need to be afraid of at least this aspect of Darwin's thought at all. Um, we can actually just take it as a mostly correct or mostly accurate for what he was saying. Um, he just noticed that um, scarcity of resource, harsh harsh environments. Um, can create competition, which can lead to violence. Violence and competition are always related. And this is all in some great race to propagate the species. And he, he, he notes, which I always think is funny that males of almost every species want to have sex more than the females. And that's like kind of a, you know, universal. And I'm like, well, I, I know there's some truth to that. Um, but, but what I want, I hope Christians who are reading this will either already know this and be aware and it'll just be secondhand to them or, uh, or that it'll be new to them that I think the biblical authors could hear everything Darwin is saying and then go like, yeah, like that's, that's how the world is. Like that's, that, that is correct. We can, you can actually measure this. I mean, he was measuring it with web feed on iguanas and birds beaks and other things, but um, yeah, things fit to their environment. You know, the squirrels outside my window are tree shaped squirrels over time and 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 the trees are squirrel shaped as well right and there's that symbiotic relationship between them and he's just trying to puzzle that out like how does that work okay he can see how it kind of seems to work over 10 years and 20 years but he's trying to speculatively imagine well what does that how does that work over a thousand years over five thousand years or ten thousand years which there's no way to do an scientific experiment over five thousand years like it's, it's physically impossible it's culturally impossible so you have to speculate what are the invisible forces that cause the visible activity to be the way that it is and so he's been a very good scientist um and and so i i want people to kind of realize that that's not where the fight is i mean some people i think where most people get worried is what darwin doesn't talk about in natural selection but later in origin of species and um is you know what what is the common descent of man and even then i don't know if he's that I, I really wonder how interested he is in figuring that all out, or maybe he just seems like that's a natural question that leads on. And, you know, he, he has a lot to say about that. And modern evolutionary science has had a lot to say about how that works as well. Um, for me, that setup, though, 
because uh, I spent a lot of time in Genesis 1 through 11 in some of my research, I was just like, wait, this is this is the same conversation the biblical authors are having. I mean, the, the curses in the garden are about uh, sexual propagation of species, fit to environment. They were not fit because they had to be exiled from the environment. And scarcity of resource. I mean, literally, the man's uh, curse is scarcity of resource. That's gonna, and then the next two episodes you see are scarcity of resource and violence uh, associated directly together. And in that, I try to trace that out and show how that's not just in Genesis one through eleven. Actually, that that those themes are interwoven and carried out all the way into Jesus and the eschaton, and to the, they're they're still talking about the same things. So, in some ways, I want to say. Darwin was on to something like he is picking up patterns that the biblical authors believe are laid down in the nature of creation itself. Now the biblical authors, I think do have some fairly significantly different conceptions of the nature of reality that are going to mitigate how much, uh, you know, I think my, the contention I make is they're basically going to say, yeah, Darwin's, he's seen exactly what you would see in this present age. Uh, but a big, hang up for them is going to be, but the world wasn't like this at one point. Uh, and the world isn't going to be like this at another point in the future. So they, you know, they're kind of always looking backwards and forwards and saying there's kind of be a, a physical metaphysical reorientation of the universe. Um, so you can't judge everything by this present age, I think might be mm -hmm. the, the caution that they might lay down. Um, at least from, from my perspective. I mean, even Darwin has that sense, though, right? I mean, he Darwin is very cautious, like because even when he, you know, the thing that I often point to, because uh, you know, Darwin had experiences coming out of this a crisis of his his own faith, mm -hmm. as it were, and uh, one of the ones that he most people know about is he points to the Ichneumon wasp, mm. right? And we right. see this right. wasp that lays its larva in the belly of a. Uh, another caterpillar or right, something like right. that. And it essentially pulls like a xenomorph. <laughs> eats it from, from the alien, inside out, eats right? from the yeah. inside out. And he looks at that and it's like, you can see the, the problem of evil within this story. But the sense is, even as he points to that and it, you know, in his letters to a uh, Asa Gray, you can kind of oh, see yeah. this wrestling with his own, um, his own theodicy in this still points to a sense that, things are not as they should be, right? Yeah. You, it's like still an inescapable yeah. eschatological bent where he's looking at it going, I, I, I have a problem with this, but I have a problem with this because I have this deep sense that something's not right about the way the Ichneumon wasp is doing right. its thing here. Right. And he does seem to resist, you know, in his letters when people try to point out that maybe there's a way to reconcile what he's doing with the Old Testament, you know, the, mm -hmm. the flood story or something like that. He's like, he bats that down. He's not really interested in trying to reconcile that, which again, I can't blame him. He's a man of his age. And like a lot of people of our age, they don't, and and I, I don't think this is what people were trying to point out, but they don't take the biblical authors to be proposing a serious intellectual view of the world. They see it as like this antiquated iron bronze age group of primitives who have these, you know, they think the world is three or four deckers, you know, with a hard dome and, water above it and water below it, um, which I try to point out is not an irrational or an unscientific view. That's a perfectly accurate view if you're that person at that time in history, and that's the tools you have and the concepts you have of the world. Um, you know, their view of 
urology and urination and the kidney system was probably pretty antiquated too. It was, you know, it, it was also not that accurate, but it was certainly, they did have scientific views. They believed that water came in or whatever came in and it comes out in a certain way. And they talk about that in a few places in the Bible, sometimes jokingly, but um, the, it's just, it's just not as accurate ours today. And there's a little bit of what uh, people call chronological snobbery. I think that's C.S. Lewis talks about chronological snobbery. Um, as somehow that these are primitive people that don't have sophisticated thoughts. And so this book, believe it or not, is is actually a side project. And the, the big project is getting people to value the intellectual world of the Bible and see that it's actually the most sophisticated collection of literature in, the, in antiquity, bar none. Um, and it's through story, law, poetry, and other forms of reasoning. It has its own philosophical style of talking about kind of the nature of reality, the nature of humans, interaction, inquiry, uh, everything that we're ethics, you know. So what natural selection can't accommodate is that fit to environment might be dependent on your moral behavior, right? So the biblical mm -hmm. authors really, that's a direct connection. You know, the the blood goes into the dirt and the, the dirt is a main character in Genesis 1 through 11. And that causes exile. Um, the switching allegiance to the, the 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 voice of Yahweh over to the voice of the serpent, that causes exile. Um, so that's something that I don't think uh, a non-theistic account of selection, creation, evolutionary theory, it, it can't accommodate that. And I'm like, yeah, of course it can't. That's fine. If it has a naturalistic history bent, it believes everything can be explained naturalistically. And of course, in the in the book, I try to explain there's different types of natural, right, and what nature means. And you, you got to get those straight in your head to have this conversation with the authors. But I don't think I, I think it's unreasonable to hold people who are trying to give a natural history account, purely natural history account, to the standards of the biblical discussion of natural selection. Mm. Um, but to say that they're they're talking about two completely different things and that one has nothing to do with the other, I think is well, I would say it's naive, but I understand <laughs> people just haven't been talking about this way. I get very animated in my research by the thing that nobody is talking about that I think is so obviously being missed in the conversation. So I think this book is, um, and if, by the time you get to the end of the book, it's very clear. This book does not end the conversation. It, it is it is very clearly aimed to just begin a part of the conversation that I think is being overlooked by yeah. most people. Is it fair to say too, Drew, that your intent, I think you make this pretty explicit at the beginning, but I also want to be clear for listeners. I mean, you know, some of you that are just maybe in the beginning stages of kind of maybe trying to remove some of the proposed science faith hostilities, and maybe now you're just kind of exploring different biblical hermeneutics that don't lead you to young earth creationism. This probably isn't the book that you've necessarily intended to write is like an apologetic for, yeah. for that, right? This kind of assumes maybe people that are in a different place in the journey where they're fine engaging with the, the established science of our day and then trying to figure out how the biblical story engages with that. So I think that's, I want to be clear for listeners, if you're like maybe a little earlier in your journey, I've got stuff in the back catalog. I'm sure, you know, Drew could recommend other resources to you as well. I, you know, I think, I think the thing that when you laid this out, it was like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. You're not saying per se, do, we're not doing some anachronistic move where you're proposing that the biblical authors have Darwin and evolution in mind yeah. as they're addressing yeah. these To be issues. clear, yes, no, I'm not doing that. Right. 
not doing that same thing because then you'd be like, yeah, well, that's kind of what the young earth and you know, they're doing that same move as well. But when you talk about this, I was like, well, obviously, obviously these would be, you know, if we even take the evolutionary perspective, and I am not a professing Christian, I'm, if I'm not a Christian or I'm not, um, I'm not a, a Jew who's reading uh, Genesis as scripture, I would still look at that and go, oh yeah, all these ancient Near Eastern accounts, because he, they're humans <laughs> who have become humans through this process of evolution, and the thing that we're trying most to do is stay alive and pass on our genetic code, it would make a lot of sense that as people are on this journey of meaning making within their own cultural context, that they would be finding ways of doing meaning making that addresses probably our biggest fundamental concerns, right? right? right. Does that seem more like what you're trying to get at yeah. with saying that the biblical authors are addressing these Darwinian concerns? Yes. And I think what was surprising to me is that um, they're the only ones in antiquity who are doing this. Um, so the Mesopotamians, you know, Neo-Assyrians, Babylonians, Egyptians, Chinese, um, like, and I survey in the book quite a few different uh, creation traditions uh, from China all the way to North America, trying to find now again. Some maybe somebody knows a, a tradition that I don't. I'm in a I'm in a near ancient Near Eastern work group, you know, so I kind of ran this past some people, but um, it was a little shocking to me that. Only the Hebrews are talking about the exact same things that that uh, Darwin is identifying as his elements of uh, you know the, the the pressures of natural selection, um, and they're and they're putting them in direct conversation with each other, so that, like they're they're intertwined and interdependent upon each other in the way that Darwin does, and so that's just interesting. I don't like I don't even know what to make of that fact. Like to me, that's just like a historical fact. If you want, if you go back in history and say who is talking like Darwin about natural selection, uh, the Hebrew account, and not just Genesis, but th this this discussion carries on beyond Genesis. Like they're the only ones that are doing anything uh, that even approaches something similar to what Darwin is doing, uh, much less something that it actually I think has a lot of parallels. Um, now I do think I would say if you were to zap the biblical authors into the modern day, explain to them exactly what Darwin thought or what evolutionary science, because evolutionary science doesn't necessarily agree with a lot of what Darwin said. Like there's some, there's some debate about um, some of his ideas. Um, I think they would both say like, okay, yeah, I understand why they think that. And I think they would also have some critique uh, as well. I think they're laying down some critical boundaries where they're like, yeah, no, that's not exactly what, how it goes. Right. Um, uh, so I try to feel out some of the places where there's clearly overlap in their thinking and then also the place where it's going to be, it's a, it's a more profound conflict. I think this, this is what I, what I kind of came to conclude was the conflict actually isn't something as, as silly as science versus religion, because science essentially emerges from uh, Hebrew and then later Christian religion. Uh, and uniquely from Hebrew religion and not from Greek or not from Greek philosophy, not from Roman thought. Like it, it doesn't come out of Ptolemaic thought. It comes uniquely from the Hebrew world. Um, and, and so there's that kind of science religion conflict myth that has to be dealt with everybody who works in this field. It says like, okay, you got to deal with that myth and why people think that's the case. Um, but even more than that, um, they're, they're convivial conversation partners. Like you can let them talk to each other directly and see how they would critique each other. 
Hmm. Um, in modern, and so in some sense, modern evolutionary science and some of the ideas of evolutionary theory that have ever, emerged late 20th century to present um, have to contend in a different way with what the biblical authors are doing than Darwin does. I think they would be more on board with Darwin and, and maybe slightly um, more critical of um, modern evolutionary science that... And, and I think mainly on the front of cooperation. Uh, there's a lot of evolutionary science today that wants to see very cooperative ways forward. And I think biblical authors would be more skeptical of that. Could you say more about why you see, I don't want to get, uh, you know, this could be a, a, a side path that could, we could go for a while on, but I can hear listeners' voices in my head going, <laughs> What, that, that Greek oh, and Roman, like, that, that, yeah, that's yeah. not the road what to if, science? <laughs> yeah, like, what about Aristotle? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. what, well, what about Aristotelian Aristotle like, is probably we... your best your best bet, because he is, again, mm-hmm. exploring the natural world. But again, it's, it's because of Aristotle that Galileo cannot figure out that the planetary orbits are not circular, right? Because he's committed to Aristotelian theology, that divine divine shapes are circular, and therefore, if the divine creator created a planetary system, orbits have to be circular. And so he's trying to jam his math into his Greek theological view, his Aristotelian theological view, that has no basis in reality. Uh, it's, a, it's a purely dogmatic theological view. It has a basis in Aristotelian thought. Kepler comes along and says, no, it's clearly elliptical orbits, but Kepler also is basing that on, he has a Neoplatonic view that ratios are the supreme uh, version of expression of divine uh, thought and creativity. And so they're both like kind of, they have a good enough story for, for accurately for what they're doing, but you know, Kepler has a more accurate story, but to, to the, to his death, Galileo refused to accept Kepler's view um, because he held dogmatically onto Greek theology. Uh, the history of, of science in the West, actually, there's a book, I don't even know if you meant to, Magisteria. This is a great book by Nicholas Spencer, um, it, uh, where he kind of just is talking about the intertanglement of religion and science, which is uh, honestly a lot of it, you know, if you've read in this world, it's, you've heard a lot of it before, it's put together in a very nice storyline. But one of the things he does throughout, which I don't even think he means to, I think he's just casually throwing in what is, seems to be factually true, is that science, every kind of leap in science is usually accompanied by dropping a Greek thought uh, and saying like, all right, we're no longer going to believe that. And, and math and engineering as well. So things like zero being a placeholder in math that that once it was allowed in mathematics, um, you know, mathematics and engineering shot forward because they could they could do all kinds of new things that they couldn't do before. Well, why why didn't they have zero until uh, early in the Enlightenment? Why was zero not a placeholder? Because the Greek theological idea that numbers are eternal, unchangeable forms in the heavens, and you can't have an eternal, unchangeable form of nothingness. Mm-hmm. Um, once the idea drops, there's a great book called The History of Zero, if anybody wants to look into this. Um, I forget the author. But once once they kind of get over that Greek theological idea, it drops out, and they're like, "Hey, we can just like put null placeholders here, and then we can do all kinds of crazy stuff." Um, things spring forward, and so you find, if I could put it this way, there's also like this is a larger question in intellectual history studies, like why does science only emerge in the West? The Muslim world is. Um, uh, is obviously a peak, uh, uh, what would you call it? Peak um, intellectual powerhouse, right? Uh, mm-hmm. 
the Chinese peak intellectual powerhouses, right? Mesopotamians uh, as well, uh, Greeks, Romans, everybody has these centers that are just like, everybody's so impressed with everybody else. They go visit one of these other centers and they're just like, how do these people know so much and do so much? And yet science doesn't emerge there. It emerges only in this kind of Hebrew-centric uh, worldview. I, I mean, we're all speculating at this point, but my chief speculation right now, which has, has some credit, is you can't do real rigorous scientific inquiry unless you have the conceptual basis for what you're doing. And the conceptual basis for science can't come from a worldview that says none of this is real. All of this is false. All of this is deceptive. Your body, your senses, every way that you know it is also deceptive. Right. Whether that's Brahmanism or Buddhism or Platonism. Gnosticism. Gnosticism, <laughs> yeah. Everything is wrong. Uh, there really is this view that does come uniquely from the Hebrew Bible. I don't know anybody else that anybody else that is purportedly saying this as early as the mm. Hebrews. No, the world is real. And the world actually, you can set up experiments with null hypotheses, which happens several times in the Hebrew Bible. And reality kicks back and it's and it is the authority on your thoughts. If you thought this is what's going on, reality can kick back and tell you, no, that's that's not what's going on. This is what's going on. And you have to well, a, submit to reality. Well, that's a great way to get us bridged back on to the, the main trail here yeah. because the claim of God making a good creation has implications about its intelligibility mm -hmm. and right. um, the, the ability to know God through the created order that gets at, I think one of the things that many people do struggle with, with Darwin's story, uh, as at least maybe in at a folk level, Darwin's story, mm. the, the story about s scarcity. And I want to talk about that a little bit because I think for many people, the struggle as they go, all right, now I know my biblical hermeneutic doesn't force this particular interpretation on the text. I'm trying to engage with science. But one of the, th the things that I'm reading now is like, okay, so there was death for a really, really long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, that, that thing that actually allowed mammals to come to be, that cataclysmic event that happened 64 million years ago that took out Jurassic Park, that thing which actually allowed us to come to be sounds sounds not very good. I mean, good for us because right. we're still here. Not good if you're, you know, the T-Rex. Uh, that seems like that's a competing story. And then right. you get into Darwin, who's like, okay, so these adaptations happen because of the intense competition over scarcity of resource. These seem like two different stories, Drew. Do we have any way of reconciling them? Or are you saying that maybe if we really get to know the biblical story well, that we should go looking for evidence of that in the sciences? Or do you think that these yeah. are... That's a good question. Um, and I, I, it is kind of funny sometimes how Darwin tries to like alleviate the reader, like, don't worry, you know, good competition means quick death, you know, like it's all <laughs> fine. Nothing yeah. to see here. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, I, and I do take that seriously. You know, I heard somebody the other, I, I want to get back to your question, but on this point of like the kind of morality of the story, we had a, uh, a guest lecturer a while back who was coming in and talking about the exquisite design of humans through the mechanisms of, of evolution. And, and was kind of raving about evolution. And this is the, the last part of the book or the, the last third of the book. I have a couple chapters on sex. And honestly, it was the most depressing part of the book to research and write. 
because I, I paint me naive, but I did not know that most um, evolutionary biologists believe that most uh, propagation happens through what we call rape today. Uh, we anthropomorphize it, I guess. Um, what they call forced copulation. Uh, what mm-hmm. what humans call rape. Um, and so I, I didn't push it on him publicly because it seemed a little bit inappropriate. But uh, I would say like, hey, this exquisite mechanism, you realize that that mechanism is uh, hundreds of thousands Racist of years animals. of raping, uh, right? And and of course, like an, animal, forced copulation amongst animals, it was like, it's like every article I read was more depressing than the last one. Uh, you know, from ducks to dolphins to caterpillars, it was just horrible all the way through. Um, and so... So how do you call any of that good? How do you like? How do you kind of? Right. Do you just not? Yeah. Right? And you go well. You just can't. You can't force. You can't force biblical ethical norms onto the creator order. But then you're like, all right. So what do we just throw out natural theology right. altogether? Yeah. There's no place for general revelation. Natural theology. Do we just throw it out? That that to me seems like equally problematic for anybody that's being honest about. Yes. I am authentically on this journey of meaning making and I'm trying to make sense of the world. Yeah. Christian or not. Yeah. Yeah. Christian or not. And I go, that doesn't seem like a world that was created good. I have, I mean, I'll confess, I have a hard time, you know, we talk about like the shape of the biblical story and oftentimes we, you know, lay pastors and I don't know how many theologians actually talk about a U-shaped story, but the idea that we start in Eden, then there's the fall, and then the U, you know, we're, as we go through redemption on our way to the eschaton, we're getting back to Eden. Mm. But Darwin's story doesn't seem like it's a U-shaped story. It's just, it's, you know, maybe like, maybe if you like are a disciple of Hegel, you can kind of go, oh, it's a story (laughs) that goes like this, Right. right? Continual progress to the eschaton, right. but I don't think you'd think, you know, this is anthropomorphizing here, but I don't think you'd think that if you were a dinosaur right. 64 million years ago, you're not going like, it's going like this, this, you won't be able to see this. If this is the audio only podcast, this is special just for you to right. my finger movements and hand movements. So it's a story that's progressing towards the eschaton, but how do you deal with this? Like deeming of creation as good. Yeah, And it seems like that part of the story when fundamental to us even being able to tell it, like we're, we're nowhere, no one's here to even narrate the story until humans come on the scene. And it's like, well, humans don't come onto the scene except for out of immense catastrophe, scarcity of resources. Did we just, and I know there's actually pretty good evidence. This isn't true, but did we just club all the Neanderthals to death? You know, we win some brutal prehistoric war for our dominance on the planet because that's certainly one narrative yeah i i think it's you know and i'm I'm obviously more compelled by the intellectual world of the bible versus our intellectual world today and kind of how we conceptualize things um but i mean i think this is one of those this is a slight tangent um probably the most dangerous thing about Darwin's idea. And of course it's not just Darwin. I mean, he's, he's the guy we hang everything on, but lots of people thought this, uh, but progressivism, uh, and evolutionism and that, that we're all headed towards some Zenith point of humanity. I mean, uh, Nietzsche takes this on as kind of his, uh, as his moniker as the Ubermensch is the goal. And that caused a lot of colonial, colonialism, war, death, 
Um, and even today, it still causes looking down on certain types of people as primitive um, and, and elevating certain types of civilization over against those people, which makes it easy to enslave, to uh, abuse, exploit. And the Hebrew Bible is, is all like, forget about Genesis, just start in Exodus. It's like, you are all slaves. You are all like getting ground into the dust uh, and being exploited and mistreated. None of you are nobility. Like there was no systems. God raised you all up. And, and even in Exodus, he warns them. Now, if you exploit the poor or the foreigner or the widow or the orphan, I'm going to kill you all, um, which he which he does later in the story. Spoiler. Um, so uh, so there, there really is this anti-progressivist bent in scripture that I think, you know, if you're just thinking like the large, how you tell the story, they're like, no, no, no. Uh, the, the days of Nehemiah are not better days than the, the days of Genesis 11 or 12, right? Um, they're different days and mm -hmm. there, there are new things and innovations. And, you know, I don't want to say there's no progress in the world or something like that, Yeah, but progressivism and evolutionism, and I don't mean them in the political movements today, although they sometimes flourish in certain movements today, uh, those two notions are heinously dangerous when people appropriate them as like the reality of the world. Um, and I think the scriptures are pushing against them intensely. Uh, that said, it is difficult for me. Uh, Jim Stump from BioLogos, you know, when we we're at a conference together, I was spouting some of my spiels and ideas. And he just looks at me and he goes like, what do you do with the natural history? And I was yeah, like, exactly. I was like, I actually, I don't, I don't know what to do with the natural. Actually, it sent me on. Actually, part of the story of this book is me saying, like, yeah, okay, what do we do with the natural history? Which mm -hmm. you can tell, I still don't know what to do with natural history, um, and uh, how natural history figures into the creation of humans. It, it is, I think, from the biblical authors. I leave it in tension in the book. Obviously, I just say, like, look, I don't know how you would reconcile these things fully. Uh, yeah. in some easy, yeah. canny way in which everybody walks away feeling good about themselves. Yeah. I, I think what you end up with is biblical authors who think the nature of the universe is radically different than we do. Uh, we as a you know, society and how we kind of appropriated these ideas um, that they think there is a different story of history to tell. And what I think is interesting about that, I had not seen that U shape thing before, um, but what I think is interesting about the biblical author's version of that, because uh, again, I don't think there is like one master story that kind of covers everything in scripture. I think it's overlaying stories, mm -hmm. but it's not that human souls are saved and go into a heavenly estate. It's that the nature of the dirt, the steel, the rust, everything is somehow reoriented in some uh, proper relationship. And so Whatever is going on, you know, even though I, I jokingly, well, it's kind of jokingly, I put the what about the dinosaurs question up in the front of the book, because uh, that was a real question of mine that was keeping me from becoming a Christian at one point, um, is that the, the, long, the long shot of the biblical storyline is that, yes, the dinosaurs will actually be taken care of somehow in this story. I don't know. I don't know how. And and uh, I have heard stories we'll get, also that people we'll get their DNA from mosquitoes. Yeah, yeah, hopefully, and, you know, yep. <laughs> as long as we can just keep it on an island, uh, and yeah, yeah that'd just be keep, totally yeah. safe then. Um, I, I I I have heard stories though, and I should track down the sources on these. Where uh, of that dragon, the the imagination of the dragon actually might have just been in people finding dinosaur bones. Um, mm -hmm. You know that they're running across these things, and and in that world, I mean, again, it's a 
believing that there is such a thing as a dragon, maybe not a flying one, because uh, you have no evidence of wings, but um, that would have been an accurate scientific view if you just stumble across the head of a T-Rex. Uh, right. the, you'd be like, well, we've seen skeletons before. If I can fill in imaginatively what's going on here, there were some massive behemoths and beasts that used to rule the world, and God somehow tamed them and whacked them down, and, you, you know... And, and then, of course, humans live side by side with them and um, and f- fed the T-Rexes in the garden or something. I don't know how you work that out. But but you can see why, like, I understand when people get exposed to, at a very young age, whatever version of the Darwinian story, even if it's a caricature from, you know, uh, a young earth creationist, that I do understand the appeal for those trying to remain faithful to the biblical narrative as the, the ultimate guiding story of their life, where they, they see this story and then they see Darwin's story and they go right from the get-go, here's the first thing. You know, so we do the, the typical four-phase story of the, the, the scriptures and we go creation, right. fall, redemption, consummation. We already have a point of divergence right at creation because right, right. creation was good and uh, Darwin doesn't seem and natural history doesn't seem to point to that. I'm sympathetic to it. Um, I'm also like, I also get, and I have a disagreement with him on it. And I've talked with uh, Greg Boyd about this. I don't know if you, how familiar you are with um, Greg's, you know, I, idea that essentially because of a pre-angelic fall or a pre, um, a pre, um, pre-fall uh, angelic rebellion. Yes. Yeah. The non, the non-biblical storyline. there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That the Hellenistic um, Jewish storyline. Yeah. Yeah, that we have, we've got principalities and powers essentially contaminating. And even I've, I think in past, I've, I've pressed him on this and there's recorded interviews of that out there. Um, so like how far back does that go? Does it go to the first moment of entropy when the, after the Big Bang? Right. Because without that entropy, nothing comes to be. Um, and so I find that to, I personally don't find that to be helpful but I also understand where he, what he's trying to do is to say there was some original goodness, whatever that goodness is. And I think we maybe, I don't know, you can tell me because you're the, you're the center, uh, you're the expert on Hebrew scriptures here. But the idea that, that that state of goodness was utopian and that some sort of utopian state has been broken and now we're looking forward to a new utopian state, right away people are having... If they're right. taking any facet of the Darwin story, even the updated fa- facets of the Darwinian story, which have so much to do with altruism right. and looking at cooperation, right. which is like, hey, cooperation might be a bigger deal than just competitive right. um, alpha males, you know, domineering the planet. Which is an old critique. I mean, that goes back to 1930s. Uh, Ashley Montague yeah. is make is he has a he has a book. I don't remember the title, but it's something like why oh the Darwinistic fallacy. And yeah. he labels the fallacy as competition and violence. That Darwin's wrong about that. That's nineteen. Well, even even I'd say Darwin. Darwin's contemporary William Paley sees it. Yeah. I think his quote was like a myriad of happy creatures right. living in balance. Right. Which I go, well, I don't know if I can go that yeah. far. But uh, tell me what you think about like. All right, let's take that 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 element of the story, a sense of original goodness um, to creation, and someone that's that's wrestling with the, this notion of scarcity. In the Darwinian story, I know you're like, 
you're still in process of it, but could right. you give anybody a sense like, no, I think, I think you should still hold on to the biblical story here. Yeah. Like don't, uh, don't throw it out because of this mound of evidence from genetic history to geology that shows there's a death yeah. cataclysm. I don't want anybody walking through their local natural history museum and coming out and going, I can't tell, I can't make these two stories yeah. fit. So I have to toss out the one that seems the least reasonable. I, yeah. I, I mean, a few things spring to mind. One is um, evolutionary theory today or evolutionary theories, because it depends on what granularity you're at. Mm -hmm. And and then even at any particular granularity, people have different ideas as they always do, but all of them are fragile right? Extremely fragile, right? Like any, you know, they have low sample sizes, anything that's dug up out of the ground can reshape the theory by a half a million years, right? Uh, I mean, there's now people suggesting that that humans might have arisen out of Europe, I've heard recently because of some new finds, right? And so I, rather than Africa, right, which I don't know how, I don't even know how seriously to take some of these claims, because I just kind of look to my scientist friends and go, like, what, do you, what do you guys think about that? Um, and 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 I'm I'm not saying that as a critique of the theory. I'm saying that that's what evolutionary biologists will tell. I've, I'm actually quoting you know an evolutionary biologist who was on a stage saying this, not a Christian, just like a person. She said, like, look, our theories are very fragile. When you study to be a scientist, um, you design research methods so that um, the first thing you need to have is a high n, you know, a high sample size, right? Um, and and controlled experiments. That's how we actually know things. So there's a there's a style of explanation here that is true at the cosmological granularity as well. And by that, I mean like Big Bang onward. Um, there's a style of explanation here that really is kind of out on a limb from normal scientific explanation. Um, and it's and again, it's not trying to just it's not trying to explain the data. Anybody can see the data for themselves if they want to, it's trying to explain the, the invisible forces that must have been the case, the histories and the invisible forces mm -hmm. that must have been true in order for the data to be in the way, to, for the world to be the way it is today. Um, so I think that fragility of theory, even among scientists, they would, like if you walked into any scientific department and said, hey, I have this idea and let me explain to you how I would prove it or show that, it, not prove, but I would, I would show the strength of the idea and you just gave without giving the specifics that you're talking about evolutionary theory, they'd be like, I don't think any journal is going to publish that. Right. So that, I mean, that's just the problem that we're all faced with, but that does, I mean, but what do you, what else are you going to do? You're looking at all the, the, the different data right. going like, we got to make some sense of this. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is a big aggregating explanation. Um, I think the natural history record as well, you have lots of things that lived and died before humans ever came on the scene from the way we, we understand things. Um, we don't have any way to reconcile that. We don't know if their life was painful or not. We don't, I mean, we just assume they had nervous systems, so therefore pain was experienced. That doesn't actually solve, I mean, it, it, it's not any different than why animals die. To, I mean, I look at ducks on a frozen pond and I'm like, they have to be miserable. How can they not be like, that's, I mean, you're in Minnesota, like, I, you know, I just, anybody in the cold weather, miserable, yeah. a lot of miserable, mighty yeah. ducks here. I mean, in, in, uh, in the, um, animals die in all kinds of horrible ways today, right? Humans die in all kinds of horrible ways. So it's, there's not like some easy way to resolve any of this today. It's kind of like, you know, an atheist friend who just said like, well, I can't believe in God because of all the horrible suffering and 
things. And, and I'm like, well, yeah, being an atheist doesn't solve that problem at all. (laughs) Like you're stuck in the same boat. So, uh, how do So you're saying like removing, like to simply take, cause it's almost like we're still dealing with a theodicy problem here more than a science. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so to simply go and be like, this presents so many problems for this, this story isn't a good reason to abandon it and to think you're going to live in some sort of narrative vacuum without story. Every, every narrative is going to have its rub points that are going to be like intolerable for most thinking, feeling humans. Um, Mm. And on the flip side, you have, you know, I, I know everybody points this out, but it's, it's worth reiterating Genesis as a text uh, has two chapters devoted to the creation of the cosmos and then the creation of humans and animals within it and the kind of habitats and, and the formation of kind of a, a moral, marital, sexual relationship. And I, and I try to make a big deal about it is a sexual relationship. It's not asexual. It is sexual. And so that, has, that actually has some probably lingering effects for how we think about the world. Um, and as I forget who said it, that, but, you know, two chapters for creation and 12 chapters for Joseph, who isn't even a patriarch. And his entire line is killed off by Second Kings 16. Um, so that's just bad. You know, that, that's the wrong setup. It, so there is a sense in which you have to respect the silence of the biblical authors where they, they do seem to tip their hand at more going on than what they're talking about. Um, and this is true in the garden where, you know, uh, Cain says, oh, if people find me, you know, or Cain has a wife. I mean, that's, there's the first one, right? Uh, Augustine's whence Cain's wife comes from. Um, people are going to find me and kill me. Uh, Cain takes uh, Abel out into the country, which implies there's some urban setting he has removed himself from in order to do this, right? Um, it's, it, it is implying that there are other things going on and maybe even that there are other people and other, you know, other situations. Um, but it is not interested at all in talking about them. Um, so, and it is extremely terse economic storytelling. I don't think Genesis one is actually story. I think it's more like genealogy than anything else, but whatever it is, it's not classical storytelling, but it's, it's giving it an account of creation. It's extremely economic. It's packed with all kinds of interesting things about, governance, ritual, uh, what it means to be a human, sexuality, et cetera. Like all kinds of things are packed into this very small story. And then it's like, you know, a tour guide moving on. We're moving on. We're going to the next thing. I want to get you to the, you know, the exhibit down the hall. It's going to close quickly, right? Um, And so I warn students quite often because they always want to fill in the gaps of the story with with other stories, which is where you get like the fall of the, you know, Satan was God's most beautiful angel who took a third of the angels with them. And it's like, well, none of that's in scripture, but somebody's trying to fill a gap. Like, well, because Genesis three opens up with, there is some creature who is going to act adversarially against God. Like, how did he get here? Who is a, a a Nahash, a serpent kind of thing. Where did he come from? It's just like, Oh yeah, we're not going to talk about that. We're moving on. We're moving on. Like that's not the focus. And so there really is this laser like focus of these stories and there's part of me that just wants to respect that. And like, if you were to ask me personally, hey, Drew, what do you think? You didn't ask me, but I'll just answer. What do you think is going on here? I think whoever put Genesis together, I don't know if that was a Moses tradition or something else, but whoever puts that text together, A, is highly skilled in literature. 
Uh, B, I think they were probably a little mystified by what's going on in Genesis 1 through 11 as well. Um, they, they, there seems to be this lack of willingness to put even editorial comments in, which later in Genesis you do get um, editorial comments and changes, you know, as it is to this day, or he chased them all the way up to, the, to Dan, which doesn't exist in the time of Abraham. So there's this willingness to kind of update and clarify, but in Genesis 1 through 11, it's kind of treated as a special block that needs to be left the way it is. Um, and so I think it's ancient people having reverence for a much more ancient time and creation narrative that they think is basically true to life and explains the nature of the reality that they encounter and see today. Um, and, and that's what, and it sets up ideas for marriage, kingdom, po politics, uh, ethics, morality, treatment of the vulnerable. It sets up all of those dominoes so that they can fall later in the story, but that's kind of how they leave it. Um, and whether ancient people actually thought there was one man and one woman or not, I, it's it, it seems to me that they did, that the story reads that way. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe there's another way they read it that it that these were stand-ins or whatever. I know uh, Josh Schwamidas is, is like, no, you can actually, you can comport this with evolution if you just put evolution outside the garden, special creation in the garden, and then let Adam and Eve have at it with all the evolved humans or whatever. You can explain genetically every human on the face of the earth being related to Adam and Eve within 3,000 years or something like that. Is that the like dome of Eden theory? No, or no, no. He's a, he's a computational oh. biologist. So he's oh, the one who okay. tore down the, um, the misinformation or the old information that's been overridden that you needed like 10,000 hominids minimum to make humans like the bottleneck theory. He's like, mm -hmm. nope, you don't, that's not true at all. That's not, I and mean, he's a, like a research scientist at a, major university he's he's just like no that's just old old bad data like we we got better yeah. models now that show no it only takes a couple thousand years of a one man and one woman intermixing with another population to where to the point where they're genetically related to every single one of those people mm -hmm. um so, so what i hear you saying drew is like these narratives we have to respect it, it sounds an off awful bit like the way i felt when i was a kid watching the original um, trilogy for star wars mm. and all of a sudden like boba fett pops up on the screen <laughs> right. and you're like who He's is like that and they're like, we're not going to tell you anything yeah. about him or even like the emperor yeah. when the emperor you finally get the emperor in the throne room you're like whoa yes and there's almost something to and i still i mean i'm still a star wars nerd i'll still like a <laughs> like a total rube just devour anything yeah. that they yeah. still put out but part of me still goes mm, that mystery it was probably almost better. And so what I hear you saying is like to respect the biblical authors as storytellers telling a really, really compelling story that uh, still isn't like trying to answer all of our questions. Like we need to zero in on what ans what questions they are attempting to yes. answer. Um, and maybe, uh, you know, not to answer my own question here, but it does seem like we have to assume some sort of, and when we just say this is a philosophical assumption, but it seems to comport with the biblical narrative that if we don't assume and we don't start from a place of original goodness, like in God, then we actually lose the rationality and, and the reasonableness of these processes that actually have led us to be able to discern things like, oh yeah, dinosaurs got killed off 65 million years ago. Because right. we undercut that and we, we're left with like an irrational world um, then the whole enterprise of this scientific story doesn't make sense. So I'm still committed 
to holding on to some sort of state of original goodness. Right. What that looks like uh, is is tricky. I, I do want to I do want to talk about this with the time that we have, Drew, because I, you bring up in the book the this interesting way in which, and maybe you didn't word it like this. This is my interpretation, so you can correct me. A way in which the biblical stories. Let's take something like the affirmation of the inherently good way that God has created the world. And there does seem to be, you mentioned the work of like Martin Novak, for example, mm -hmm. Sarah Coakley. Martin Novak is, uh, what, would, what was he, a comp, what do you call him? A computational biologist? Yes, computational biologist, like yeah. Yeah, something like that. And Sarah Coakley, of course, is a theologian. And, um, you know, the, the, the book that we've shared in appreciation for the, the survival of the friendliest. Mm -hmm. There does seem to be a way in which almost like that biblical story, which affirms some original goodness and it for Christians, for me, I, I've talked about the, 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 the slain lamb prototype, mm. right? And throwing out a theory that maybe a lamb slain, seated, enthroned as ruler of the cosmos actually gives us a telos for the way the evolutionary process should go. So for example, extrapolating from that, that we should, in human communities, we should be celebrating the way altruism and cooperation have played some role in group selection mm. that have actually made for better, stronger, healthier human communities that can collaborate, cooperate, that are actually more fit to survive than human communities that are organized around scarcity, violence, you know, I'm just the alpha, right. you know, that's going to take over. So tell me a little bit what you think about that, that, that concept of, can we take the insights from the biblical story to actually help us become better readers of the world? And what sorts of things have you noticed as you've been kind of engaging with these stories, you start to notice and you go, Hey, I, I think there's reason to believe here that, um, we can't just assume when Charles Darwin formed this into a narrative that his narrative conclusions are somehow infallible, right. that there's reason to believe that we could see things like altruism or cooperation. What sorts of things in the sciences have made you go, oh, that's really fascinating. And I see some biblical connection well, a lot, in a positive yeah, way. Yeah, a I lot say. of things. Um it, including the altruism thing, uh, I, you know, that one seems just uh, like low hanging fruit. Um, the, the interesting thing about the altruism thing is it's, uh, this book, uh, survival of the friendliness, which is a, uh, friendliest, which is a fascinating, uh, book and thesis. But what was interesting about it to me is it, it actually doesn't require evolution at all. <laughs> it requires, it requires zero evolution to explain what they're trying to explain in that book. And so, um, and by that, I, I don't mean natural, like there can be selection, which is what they're arguing is, that, you know, that creation itself, there's mechanisms in creation that can select for friendliness, which creates what we would consider overall beneficial goods for creatures and, you know, human creatures and other creatures together. Um, and so, uh, you know, in the research, it's, it was really interesting to me that the, the research they cite in there about the Fox studies in Russia which everybody... Yeah, are you able to summarize that? Yeah, in, I mean, essentially, you know, kind of like uh, we used to think geology was like slow drips over millions of years creates formations. And then in the 20th century, geologists were like, 
no, all of these badland canyons were created in two days from an ice dam breaking, right? This uh, cat- catastrophic geology, geology right? Mm-hmm. And you have something similar with the, they were breeding um, foxes for friendliness. They basically, how they interacted with humans and they picked the ones that interacted friend, you know, what we call friendlier with humans. Uh, but the shocking thing was, I think it was over like 10 or 12 generations. It wasn't that long. And Fox generations no. are only a few years each or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So 10 or 12 generations, the the physical aspects of the, the foxes became more doggy, uh, uh, like their snout length, their canine teeth, their ears changed shape. Like they were, they were uh, morphing in yeah. real time. Shorter teeth. Yeah. Yeah, so like less aggressive, yes, less aggressive. Uh, yeah, everything everything that a that a fox needs to hunt in the wild is maybe we could say deforming or reforming in real time over a handful of generations, which is years. But it was like measurable. You know, in many ways, we could look back at the beaks uh, of Darwin's birds in the Galapagos mm-hmm. and say, oh yeah, there's probably you know if Darwin had hung around long enough, he probably could have seen like in real time in his life active changing of those beaks uh in, in that uh, in that environment these had decreased so this was one of the things that i was like oh that's so fascinating about the changes in the foxes was the decreased baseline levels of stress right. hormone <laughs> right cortisol right cortisol yeah. right yeah. like so you, you know that your cortisol levels fluctuate all the time but you could in theory like kind of come to like an average and they saw with these foxes after all of these other physiological changes which you would look at and go you'd say they looked from a human perspective, they look cuter. Yeah, yeah. But they're also like less stressed. Yes, which allows them to, to interact with humans more friendly and to look cuter as well because that relaxes a lot of muscles in their faces that would otherwise be tense. And yeah, so there's, this is an example of something where I think, uh, and I, I'm, I'm hesitant to tie it to like metaphysical corruption, but um and because I don't actually have a, a strong view or I, I'm very agnostic on the issue of like whether there's animal predation and view in the biblical author's view of the eschaton and what the end will finally look like. Um, I don't know, but this does, uh, this does give us a, a real life example that things might've happened a lot quicker or they can happen in fits and spurts and that can very quickly change an environment. Cause that's, you know, we talk about the Fox, but, um, I give the example of the, the cascade um, mutations or the cascading effects. There's a name for it, cascading something uh, in Yellowstone. When they reintroduced uh, wolves back into Yellowstone, the course of the river changed um, because mm-hmm. there was like this cascading event that, you know, the, basically the, the, the animals that kept the trees in place, that kept the river in place, uh, were now under a predatory uh, system that they weren't under before. And so this kind of fit between animals and the land and predation and the and friendliness uh, and like everything can happen very quickly. Um, and that's not an argument for or against, but this is these are the kinds of things that Darwin would expect to be able to be seen. I mean, I think if you pulled him forward 150 years, he'd be like, "Oh, great, okay, we're we're seeing this stuff. Uh, excellent, you know." Mm-hmm. And he'd probably have a lot of other questions for us. Um, I think the problem of good, though, and this is the one that I come back to at the very end of the book, is can you have a system of change that you want to say is guided by God and yet relies on things like torturous pain, rape? Um, 
I mean, I don't think God is opposed at all to allowing humans to suffer in order to shape them. Uh, that seems to be an MO after, after, um, Genesis three, at least. Um, but can that actually be part of the mechanism that he looks at and goes, yes, this is good. Uh, I think there's more work to be done on that front. That one, that one seems to be, to be like a no go. Like, I just don't see a way. Also, I have Nancy Percy. What's it? Yeah. Yeah. I know her. Yeah. Nancy Percy's theory on, you know, kind of arguing that you, in some ways, then the, you could see the animal world as participating in Christ's suffering. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Fine. Um, I'm not interested in those kind of explanations. Not, not because it's silly or anything, because it's a, that's a real theological attempt, but more, and I haven't done the work, and so I'm speaking mm-hmm. from ignorance, is um, do the biblical authors have a notable appreciation for that kind of mechanism, and does that fit in their eschatological view? Um, maybe, maybe if I looked closer, that's exactly what I would see. Um, that wasn't mm-hmm. the task of this particular uh, book, but it is, some, it is the one thing that I just, at the end of the day, I was just like, I don't see how if evolution, even a cooperative version include, I mean, this is the thing that's funny, like the cooperative version with the bonobo chimpanzees uh, that everybody points to. I'm like, yeah, but the reason that works is because they all have incestuous sex constantly. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's yeah. the explanation is there's, there's this constant, you know, like uh, same sex, sex, opposite sex, sex, mother, child, sex, yeah. So people, so people aren't familiar. Oh, sorry, with the we shouldn't just right. <laughs> <laughs> so bonobos, bonobos and chimps yeah. are supposed to be our, our nearest, our nearest relatives. Bonobos, I don't think they've ever recorded an instance of uh, bonobo murder. Yeah, they've they've never right? hunt. They don't they hunt other chimps. They don't yeah. hunt chimps. Are incredibly territorial. But, but incredibly bonobos, are, by the way, are a type of chimpanzee. So, but right, but okay. they're yeah, they're the only ones that don't kill other monkeys or other chimps or they're not, they're not heinously murderous like chimpanzees. So. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the difference is, you know, that, that survival of the friendliest book has to deal with the question of um, like the friendly foxes, did humans at some point go through some process of domestication? Right. You know, so we see with domestication, an increase in friendliness, decrease in, in stress hormone, um, possibly even decreases in testosterone right. things like that. Um, so the differences between the bonobos and chimps, uh, you know, yes, bonobos are a type of chimp, but the differences between your, your typical chimpanzee and a bonobo are pretty stark in the way they operate in community. And it is really tempting. Cause when I started reading that book, I was like, oh man, perfect you know, example. Really yeah. Jump. Perfect example. And then you're like, mm, they are so sexually promiscuous. Well, um, and that's, and that is what anthropologists will say is the reason they're not violent is they'll, they'll cite two things. One, they live in a forest that is full of food. Right. Uh, there you go. And uh, yep. so scarcity, no scarcity, which, which yep. then no like undercuts the whole cooperative, um, cooperative through line. Right. It's like, well, no, it's, there's no scarcity to create the competition, which might create violence in that sense. Um, and they use sex or this is the thought is that they use sex to basically relieve all the natural stress of that community. Um, so when you look at why are they having so much sex, it's almost always when a predator comes in, they start having sex. I mean, it's like, it's the complete opposite of anything that we do as humans. I don't know, as far as I know, um, <laughs> I don't know, maybe there are some people who have this issue in abnormal psychology, but 
yeah but they're using sex not in a generative way or propagational way um or even not even to consummation or or copulation right, right? it's just like a no. complete free-for-all it's like masturbatory yeah yeah but it's it's stress relief um in, a, in an otherwise hostile environment uh, or sorry somewhat hostile environment so uh, yeah, I still come back to the, is there a way that you can work this out and God can look at it and say, it's good. Or maybe we can extend the word. I mean, I just happen to be working on the word good, true, and beautiful in, in the Hebrew Bible. And those are basically synonymous for each other. Um, and, and when you look at the situations that are kind of described as good or beautiful or, or true is, has a slightly different meaning. Um, it really does mean like the whole mechanism works together well. And so you do kind of have a mm-hmm. functional view of, of, mm-hmm. of truth and beauty and goodness. Um, but it's always aimed towards the, for lack of a better term, the flourishing of the community and specifically the safeguarding of the vulnerable within a flourishing community. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, on a non-cooperative, competitive, violent account, it's really hard to square what uh, the biblical authors are doing with uh, goodness and um, one of those accounts. Where if you could find some way to find a cooperative, loving, flourishing, protecting the vulnerable, which bonobos also do, are one of the few chimps that will, uh, to their own um, uh, to their own deficit, will give food to another bonobo that they've never met before. Uh, they'll right. warn them of dangers. They'll, they, they do, they do seem to have aspects of beneficence. Um, I mean, if you had to choose between living in the bono- Bonobo yeah. community or the chimp yeah. community all day, I think yeah. even the most puritanical, yes. uh, sexual prude is right. still probably going to go, I'm picking the Bonobo. Well, I remember this came true to me in, uh, fresh air on NPR when she was interviewing, uh, Terry Gross was interviewing, um, Jane Goodall. And she said, Jane, why you, you left the jungle for like four or five years when you had your baby. Why did you leave the jungle? And she goes, Oh, uh, the chimps would have eaten my baby. Uh, <laughs> she says they would have ripped him from limb to limb and eaten him uh, alive. And, and, uh, I was like, Oh, okay. when she says they're violent, like she means they are really violent. Um, they're even more violent than humans, which is pretty unusual amongst primates. Do we have then drew, Again, this kind of gets to the question of like, can we look at that and can we take, uh, you know, biblical ethics and suggest, you know, that they should in some way in, in the eschaton, that they should be applied to all of creation? Is that part of our stewardship? Right. Are we are we going to help make more uh, uh, ethical, uh, Christ-like chimps right <laughs> is is part of our stewarding of creation entail anything like that or do we just look at that and go yeah it's, it's again kind of like two worlds here we just simply can't that's amoral what happens in the animal kingdom we shouldn't extrapolate on that but then that gets really right. tricky to me because then if you start accepting that humans are animals as part of god's creation like there's not that world in our right. world and animals um, are held accountable for at least uh, murder of humans as right. part of the law, right? So, um, yes. um, so they're not morally selected out um, in the law. And as you know, in, in Genesis 2 and 3, or at least Genesis 2, um, 
the man is made of the dirt and he's called the dirtling because he's made from the dirt, Ha'adam, because he's made from Ha'adama, uh, and he has the breath of life in him given to him by God. Well, then God goes on in Genesis 2 to make all the animals from the dirt, and we find right. out later in Genesis 9, they also have the breath of life in them as well. And that's how it's described, everything with the breath of life in it. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, this kind of extreme separation of humans and animals as if they're completely different types of creatures um, is antithetical to what's going on in Genesis 1 through 11. So, yeah, I was, go ahead. I would say for me, Drew, uh, the biggest narrative war in the, in the West uh, has been since Nietzsche the idea that we should extrapolate and, and you know darwin from social darwinism into eugenics right. all of this extrapolating an ought from an is right. about darwin's story so we take darwin's story or stories we take what we can observe in the natural world we see chimps in society or bonobo society and we extrapolate out of there an ought from those is's that narrative versus you know the narrative that we would say is for me the way of jesus you know the sermon on the mount how are we supposed to live this way and of course like part of nietzsche's critique is yeah that cute slave morality right. Right. you got there yeah yeah <laughs> like what you probably need is uh, a leader with the strength of caesar and the compassion of christ but and this to me has so many implications, even in the world of politics today, when we talk about gender, uh, to me, it gets at this very core of, I think what the biggest struggle would be for a Christian. And I've, I've talked about this a lot over the years is to look at revelation. You see the picture of the slain lamb enthroned. And my first question is, isn't what killed the lamb actually King, hmm. you know? And I think that is the biggest rift when you look around the world and you see, and this is, gets to the real practical day-to-day -day questions I think your average pew-sitting Christian has about, I look at the world and I see these kinds of people succeeding. Mm -hmm. I see the world functioning in this way. And it does look like, I know this wasn't Darwin's term, but it does look like survival of the mm -hmm. fittest. You know, it looks like the biggest and baddest survive. If that's seems to be like the clearly observable truth of the natural world. And then you're telling me this other story about this first century Jew right. who was killed, you know, like I'm supposed to trust that story is going to lead to a better outcome in the end than this story. I think that's where as people wrestle with this stuff, to me, that's the biggest question of, of our age. Yeah. And that might be hyperbole, but. Well, and I think the, you know, again, ge there's Genesis one and two about creation and Genesis three, I guess you could include in the creation account there. Um, but there's a lot more said about the eschaton um, and the kind, I mean, not a ton more, but there is the significantly fleshed out details, not just in Revelation, but, you know, Isaiah 56 and 66 and um, throughout what Jesus says in, uh, in the gospels and uh, Paul. And I mean, you, you just get bits here and there. But there clearly is this, and that's why I think it's so important to talk. Uh, goodness is fine, but this reorientation of the universe, uh, that, the, the, that the heavenly realm is going to, whatever the metaphor is, the heavenly realm descends on the earthly realm and they merge back together, the uniting of the heavens and earth, as Paul says in Ephesians. Um, 
that 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 is the focus like this is how it's going to be do do we enforce that today do we like bring heaven today you know as 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 it is in heaven can we even i I mean i I was a pastor for eight years so i feel obligated to say yes you can um but like you said i and i i you know i'm an old testament guy so i'm like yeah everything jesus says says there is just basically riffing off of the hebrew bible um I mean, he's not saying anything that Hannah didn't say, right? Uh, that yeah, you think the power structures are are, are power, military might, uh, having lots of children, uh, you know? Mm-hmm. No, actually, God's gonna like God. The the, the bows of the mighty the are broken. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The poor yeah. will be raised up. The woman who has many children will be forlorn. <clears throat> the normal levers of power don't actually. I mean, this is. I think this is part of that fantastical imagination I talk about at the end of the book is that's the problem is that we do look around and we with a confirmation bias go like oh my goodness social darwinism is right like the like humans destroying the planet is part of like our we're making the planet fit to us rather than us fit to the planet <clears throat> which there's a you know i think there are responsible discerning ways in which that's true that we are destroying the planet to make it fit to us which i think is problematic in many ways um but the story from the Torah up through Hannah, up through, I mean, I don't think it's an accident that Mary recites Hannah's prayer, basically, when she's talking about Jesus, uh, to help prepare you for the upside down kingdom that was preached way back in the Torah. Um, that That's how it seems, but that's not actually what's going on. Um, and, and Paul talks about this, all powers and principalities, they'll be put to shame. You know, this is what you're going to see, but that's not actually what's going on. In fact, In fact, I would say that's actually a scientific view. This is the data, but you're not considering the invisible things that make the data the way they are. And so I think there is a selection and a confirmation bias there that prejudices our data constantly. Um, and on the flip side of that, because I, sorry, I shouldn't say this. I was, in a, I was a pastor in a charismatic church. So I've seen some of the worst forms of spiritual yeah. where you spiritualize everything and you say like, I know this looks bad, but God's going to do whatever. And I'm like, no, 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 actually, I think the, I think the reality of the brokenness of your cancer really needs to inform the way you react at this point, right? Um, hey, I'm, I'm I'm a born and bred, raised. Okay, so you know. So okay, I get that yeah. Yep. So, uh, and I love those people, and I love that tradition, and mm-hmm. I appreciate a lot about it. And and it's not just them who spiritualize things and overlook. You know, like that's in no way limited to that tradition. That's all of us. So what what you find in scripture, not to be Aristotelian, is this way of discernment, right? This and she's I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The things that I teach hold true over time and circumstance, um, and that way both fully accounts for the way reality currently and crushingly is, but also doesn't think that this is all there is to it, and this is always the way it's going to be. Um, that's just a very different outlook. I don't know how exactly to apply that outward that outlook in the rearview mirror towards creation and evolution when there's so little intent to discuss the natural history side of creation in scripture outside of that God made habitats and put creatures fit for those habitats in those habitats and there through some mechanism and even if you're a I hate to say the word literalist a traditionalist creationist literalist whatever you call them um that doesn't fully explain biologically how any of that stuff happened or geologically how any of that stuff happened. I mean, you still have to describe a world in which uh, there is some different, completely different metaphysical scheme in which all of those motors down in the flagella uh, work the way they did. Right. So, 
You still want to know where Boba Fett yeah, comes exactly. from. Exactly. Boba Fett is forever a mystery to us. So um, I don't know if they're, ir- if they're irreconcilable worlds or not. I do know this would be my kind of totalizing statement. I know where the focus of scripture is. Um, and that's not to neglect anything. Um, you know, I don't, it's like when I, I'm a biblical scholar. So when people say, where do you, where does the Bible say you go when you die? I say, you know what? They don't really talk about it at all. Um, they're just not interested and they're surrounded by death cults. So it's really interesting that even though they're surrounded by death cults, um, they don't want to talk about it. But, but what they do talk about all the time is the age of resurrection, the age of judgment, uh, that you want to survive that judgment, that, that you need God to be saved in those days, and that you're going to enter a renewed heavens and earth of some sort, whatever that looks like. Um, so I don't know if the biblical author, like if you explain to them evolution, they'd be, they might look us all in the eye and go like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how God did that. I just know he, you know, habitats and fit habitats and and things went wrong and that's, you know, the basis. I don't actually know the details. That was the brief we were given. We covered it. Uh, it sets up enough for us to understand our relation to the world today. Um, and it, neither it nor scientific explanation satisfies us in any of this, right? So uh, like, even if I'm a fully, if I'm reading every single evolutionary article that's coming out today in explanation, I'm not a satisfied individual. I've got, there's lots of mystery uh, still left uh, to go there. So. I'm much more interested. I was talking to somebody about this today. I actually am interested in having read a lot of evolutionary science over the last couple of years for this book in what feels to me like they still need to make an Einsteinian turn. There's, there's some way in which they're conceiving of the whole thing that doesn't seem to be quite right and doesn't help explain the data any better. And maybe there is a way that it will, Um, you know, and that movement from, Newtonian mechanics worked great until it didn't. And then Einstein comes along and then all of a sudden we just understand so much more of how this data fits together. Um, And maybe that's going to happen in evolutionary science. I don't think it's going to flip it upside down. um, But I feel like there's, there is some massive gap in evolutionary explanation that still needs to occur. And I feel like a lot of evolutionary scientists say things like that as well. So, Mm -hmm. so so do you do you still am I hearing you right? Do you still feel like there is a is there a role for natural theology then? You know, yeah. No, I, is there a place? For I it? I don't I don't separate natural theology from theology. I just consider I just consider all of this theology. Um, so yeah, I think we should constant. I mean, if there's anything that Scripture teaches us is that the world we can call it the natural world or whatever we want. Uh, the world, even when God in you know interrupts or bends it in unnatural ways uh, to do things. Um, that has the right to have authority over the way we think about the world. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I don't think if God speaking through his prophets were here standing next to me, I don't think for one second he'd be like, just ignore all that stuff in the ground. Like that's, that that doesn't really matter. It's it's a whole other thing. I I don't have time to explain it. You know, Uh, I think he absolutely would be like, yeah, I, I can't explain that to you today. How like how that works out? Here's what you need to know. But yeah, you can feel free to keep your eye on that. Work it out. However. I don't. I don't know what he would say, but I I yeah. do not think for a hot second that he would say ignore all of that. Um, yeah, I think the thing I'm wrestling with is how do we take some of those the stories that we see as we uh, we'll take the Bonobos or um, I don't know. I've talked about this before. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, I think it was, first name was William. The last name Muir, M-U-I-R. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. He's a biologist yeah. and his, his super chickens yes. experiment. 
you know, so this, the, the, where he took friendly docile, uh, hens and he took, uh, his super chickens who were aggressive, but they were the best egg producers. And he wanted to see if we kept each group together who would produce more eggs over time should be right. the genetic, not genetically enhanced. He wasn't doing that, but well, yeah, it, it is genetic enhancement. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, and in the end, of course, uh, if you know the story, I've talked about it several times, it's the, the friendly right. chickens who are able to cooperate, produce more eggs over the long run. And then the super chickens all pecked each other to death and there was only three left and they look sickly and nasty. I've looked at that and I'm inviting you to tell me, don't do that, Paul. (laughs) So I look at that and I go, okay, I see in some sense, uh, I see a story here. Like I see a theological story. I see an ethical story here. To me, I looked at, I've looked at that story. I used it in a sermon a few while, a few weeks ago when we were in Ephesians talking about, hey, you know, church at Ephesus, you're surrounded by this particular culture. Play the long mm-hmm. game. The long game is you should inhabit these sorts of um, virtues. You should see this in your culture, even though it's countercultural. And in the long run, the way of Jesus wins out. So I look at that and I go, yeah, the super chickens lose in the end. The Nazis would always lose right. in the end, no matter how many... A man in the high castle scenarios we can come up with the nazis always lose because they're not practicing the way of jesus and in the end the way of jesus wins should i take any such inferences are you think would you say paul don't do that with your uh your your preaching illustrations you know well or should we say hey we should see signs of yeah. this we should both see signs of the fall can we name certain things as fallen? Can we name the super chickens aggressively stealing resources and pecking each other to death as that's not how it right. should be or will be? And we can name that as such. And we can name the cooperation of the friendly chickens as saying, yes, they're just chickens, but that is the way it should right. be. And it should actually be an example to us that this way of Jesus going with the, the way, the going with the grain of God's intended order for reality is better than going against it. Of course, that still brings up why is that against the order? Yeah. So there's all kinds of defining that has to happen here. Yes. Yeah. I think I would approach that from a slightly different angle, which is, um, the, the, from the biblical author's point of view. And again, I'm summarizing lots of things that I I write in the book, but I think they would want to say, uh, or they would want to ask, which chickens were in in Eden, right? Um, it like is there a way in which the super aggressive chickens could still exist in Eden uh, the way they're supposed to, uh, and the and the cooperative ones could like I I think the part of the naivete not yours but all of ours is we kind of, like you said at the beginning we have a caricature and like aggressive wins right powerful wins and we're like well okay even history should teach us that's not uh, the case as you've said. Um, is there a way that they can be what they're supposed to be without giving up the fundamental, whatever it is, is cooperation. I mean, I think we do have a fascination right now at this cultural moment with this kind of naive ideal of, I mean, you see it with Israel Hamas right now, all the Americans are just like, how do we solve this problem? And I lived in Israel and traveled there quite a bit and Israelis and Palestinians all are like, you Americans always want to solve a problem. Like there's no solution here. Right. And, uh, this is, you know, like solving the problem means helping us not to kill each other quite as much as we have in the past like that for them, you know, and Americans are like, well, that's not a solution. Right. So I think there's some way, and this is what I do at the very end of the book is say, 
I feel like the biblical authors want to push us to be more imaginative and not be locked in cultural, like cooperation is the key, competition is the key, whatever you think that those are, but there might be something else entirely going on. Uh, and, and that that possibility just requires more of us, more discerning, more knowledge. Um, and like, is super chickens killing each other? That seems like that, that just sounds qualitatively bad and that maybe not the way God designed things to be. Um, but I'm not sure the whole cooperative cooperative one. Um, I'm not that smells bad to me too for reasons maybe I can't articulate. But I'm like I don't know. Maybe there might be something not quite right about that uh, as well. So maybe there's something else that's going on, um, and I don't know how to qualify. Mm-hmm. So for me, I, I end the book with this very cautious and curious agnosticism, saying like I don't I, I don't actually know how to rotate or rotate reconcile these two worlds together. I hear what they're saying. They clearly are grounded in reality in many ways, but they seem to have different conceptions of what reality is and how history flows. Um, and, mm. and in some ways I want to say like, so they're not exactly talking about the exact same things. Uh, and, and there's some way in which we want to say they are kind of describing two different worlds. They're looking at the same data, you know, all data are theory laden as they say. Uh, so they're looking at the same data from slightly different perspectives and that can't be reconciled. But I, the problem with what you just said, not you, but I mean that we all, we all That's have that fine. same, everything you not said, I think is what it. we would all say, right? I told you yeah. to tell me if I was wrong. Well, so. <laughs> it, I think the problem with it is that it, it presumes the final tell loss of the chicken, um, which again is problematic because both, obviously there has to be that presumption at work in everything we do that there is some proper mm-hmm. functional use of things and the way that God created things and the way he created us to be artificers and creators and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but I, I feel like you can hear it in everything I've said. I feel like we just need to be more tentative about the way we think things are supposed to be. Because if I go out in the streets of New York and into a, pro- a peace protest, I'm going to hear lots of bunk ideas about the way they think the world should be, right? Lots of naive mm-hmm. in some place, exploitative that they don't even realize and how that could be exploitative. You know, UNICEF people are always trying to get me to sign, save the children. And I'm like, Oh, you don't actually realize what UNICEF supports in some of these countries. Like you, it sounds great, but let me tell you some of the practical. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like we drag a lot of that to these, um, these films that we create of evolution in our mind or various versions of selection in our mind. And I just feel like like, we can't possibly be right about it. (laughs) there's just no way we're going to nail this one. Uh, not this century. And like you said, this is a young conversation, even in science, it's a very young conversation. So I'm, I'm kind of interested to see where this goes in a hundred years. You know, I won't be around, but I, I feel like there's going to be some significant conceptual shifts in the next, whatever, 50, hundred years. Yeah. Well, I appreciate, I actually appreciate Drew that you are, um, the, the epistemological humility <laughs> to say ignoramus. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is, it is important to be able to say, I can offer something here to the dialogue that, um, moves us in a direction, which we believe gets us closer to the truth without necessarily saying, Hey, I got this whole right. thing. I got the system. Out. And that, <laughs> Come yeah, to my and seminar. I, do think that, that's, <laughs> I think that's a good word of caution. Uh, maybe it's a uniquely American thing. I don't know, but um, of having the totalizing answer to everything, uh, you know, you probably should have said you did in order to sell I more books. But I appreciate more books that way. Yeah, <laughs> you know, 
give give Drew credit for his epistemological humility and buy a book and credit him for that. Yeah, I should have just done a bait and switch. <laughs> now that you say it, can we start over? This is yeah, yeah. Re- yeah. <laughs> reset reset the tape here. Um, this has been great, Drew. Thank you for your time. You've been really generous with your time. There's so many other things I'd love to love to talk with you about, and I'm, I'd love to have you on yeah. again sometime. Uh, you know, I think about things like, especially thinking about like, oh man, man, is the Torah like the blueprint for ideal like group selection for humans? <laughs> like, this is how human communities are supposed to work. So many fun, yes. wild ideas that oh, would be fun we to we absolutely should because I I've got takes on on those uh, that question. Um, yeah, thank you very much for taking the time to do all of this, and it's an honor. Yeah, where uh, can you tell everybody where and how they can uh, pick up your book? I know it's not out yet. It, yeah, but... it's. I think you can actually buy it. Oh, actually, I, I don't know. Oh. It, it probably won't ship from Amazon. Doing a good job. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> all my friends have sent me pictures of the book that they got in the mail, and I still have not got my hands on a copy of the book. So, um, Oh, come on, IVP. But it's got to be out in the next couple of weeks. And uh, you can get it at IVP or Amazon, anywhere you can buy paper books. And they, I think there's a Kindle version as well. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Great. So, and, you know, and again, the book is there to introduce people to, to the intellectual world of scripture, that the biblical authors are thinking seriously and sophisticated, uh, sophisticatedly. Um, about all kinds of things that I don't think we give them credit for. And so if, if nothing else for me, that's, that's the win for the book is not to convince anybody about an evolutionary view, but to convince people that the biblical authors have serious thoughts on this that are worth considering all the way down and have like implications for the life of the church discipleship and otherwise. So. Great. I'm glad you said that. Cause that, that would be my takeaway to encourage people too, as well as to say, if you come out of this uh, discussion and you go, well, it doesn't sound like Drew has the answer for everything <laughs> right. is going to fix all my problems. The one thing that I felt is a fresh uh, energy to actually return back to the biblical yeah. text to be like, oh, maybe they are addressing things here that are perennial concerns that Darwin also had concerns about. And I should really look at the text again. So I do think it would encourage you to get back into the biblical text in a way that doesn't impose anything on it, but it does open up, I think, a fresh sense of energy to engage with the text. So that's what biblical scholars do, right? On a good day. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) On a bad day, we tell people that the Bible doesn't actually say what they think it says, but that's it. And I do that a couple (laughs) times in here as well. So that's great. Thank you all for listening today. There was so much to unpack in this conversation. I'm sure many of you had thoughts, follow-up questions that came to you as you were listening. Feel free to share with me those comments, those questions, even those points of disagreement. I love hearing all of them. So there's several ways you can reach out to do that. One of which would be if you're watching on YouTube, if you go over to my YouTube channel and you want to watch this, or maybe you obviously you just got done listening to this and you want to go over and leave a comment on my YouTube channel for this video, you can do that. It's a great way to uh, see what other people maybe are sharing and having questions about too. There's a discussion forum for this on my Patreon page. You can also chime in. We've got a Discord server for those that are supporting on Patreon as well. But of course, you can also, uh, aside from those channels, if you want to connect with me on X at Paul Anleitner or on Instagram at Paul Anleitner and uh, reach out to me there. I do my best to answer as many questions or at least give some sort of feedback to each question that I can. This podcast is made possible because of the generous support of listeners just like Clint, Jesse, Alex, Brandon, Daniel, Dave, 
Eli, Garth, Jean-Marc, Jesse, John-Marc, Josie, J-Tom, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P., Stephen Harper, and Tim. Thank you all for your generous support. I really can't do this without you. Hey, if you got an idea for a video, uh, you want to see me cover some subject matter, you got a question, reach out to me with those too as well. You don't just have to like participate in the dialogue about this particular episode. If you're like, hey, Paul, I'd love to see you cover this in a video, please tell me. I love getting to know what sorts of things you're wrestling with because that's my goal is to help you process these questions, to help you find better, deeper, truer answers. And so I love hearing if you've got a particular thing you're wrestling with, a question or a subject matter you want to see covered on this podcast or on my YouTube channel, reach out and you can tell me all about that stuff as well. Well, I hope all of you have a good Thanksgiving week. Uh, have a good holiday as we enter into the Advent season. I guess we're a couple weeks away from Advent. Um, and uh, stay tuned. There's going to be some, you know, we're not going to take a break over the holiday season. I've got some great guests coming up and uh, more videos coming on my YouTube channel as well. So until next time, we'll talk again soon.